And yeah, so we're, we're beginning this 13 weeks uh, study of church history. And there's another class going on right now that you guys are missing by being here um, on evangelism. The church is trying to have different kinds of tracks of classes. Some will be very practical, like evangelism. Some will be a history class, like this one. Some will be studies of books of the Bibles, like more biblical. Some will be theological. And so we just try to rotate through those. So you'll get a chance to come to different kinds of classes and learn different things. Last time we had Old Testament overview, where we went through the whole Old Testament in about 12 weeks. And at the same time, there was a parenting class helping us think through a biblical idea of parenting. So welcome to the church history class. Let me begin by asking a question. You guys all uh, signed up, except for Keshav, he just, he's just uh, gate crashing. But the rest of you all signed up on uh, the, uh, the Google form to join a church history class. So let me ask, this isn't a test, but uh, what made you think, oh, I, I want to go to a class on church history? Me and Carson read the book, The Unquenchable Flame, I think is what it's called, Yeah. about the Reformation. Yeah. And it was just very interesting. And it made me realize I'd never really thought about like what happened after Acts and hmm. like, gone here. <laughs> yeah. And The Unquenchable Flame will be some of the content we'll consider. The, the, the Protestant Reformation is what that book's all about. We'll consider that in several weeks' time. But there's a lot of history between Acts and even the 1500s when the, when the Reformation took place. Yeah? So, my name is Robin, um, Gavin's dad. Uh, I, early in my Christian life, I read a lot of books by H.A. Einside. Mm. 400 Silent Years, The History of the Brethren Movement, Letters to the Roman Catholic Church, and over time, did a lot of reading from what's available on Legonia. But I've always grappled with the fact, question that always gets popped across to me is, why do you do the things that you do? Mm. Now that's based on what we believe. Yeah. And uh, our practices are based on what we believe. So I'm very interested in going back to some of those gaps that I have. Yeah. Uh, where does Arminus fit in? Where does Calvin fit in? How do things morph into what it is today? Dispensationalism, etc., etc. Sure. So that's where that's why I'm here. Yeah. Great. Well, it's good to have you. Welcome. And yeah, I think filling in those gaps in our, in our knowledge and, and understanding of what happened is, uh, is something that I'm actually looking forward to as we prepare this class. Because, you know, it's a lot of history. There's a lot of things that I'm still learning and grappling with. And same is true for Evan as well. So we're, we're excited to fill in those gaps. And of course, in a 13-week course one and a bit hours session each time, we're not going to hit everything. There'll still be some gaps in our knowledge that we have to go back and fill in. So we're kind of, we're going to be just taking one route through church history. Um, but yeah, yeah, that's great. Anybody else? What made you sign up for this class? Yes, um, I mean, this is something that I've always been curious about, but there are different narratives out there for the history of church. Mm-hmm. And many of them are not so pretty. Um, there's you know, like violence and things of that sort of thing. So it's something that I've always struggled with, but never really had an opportunity to dive down with, as a group. Or yeah, yeah. So it's a lone battle, so I'm, I'm happy to 
together. Yeah, no, it's a good. It's good to study these things together and kind of think through some points of history and sometimes where the church did things that we would be like, oh my goodness, what what was going on there? What were they believing? What were they thinking that led them to do those sorts of things? So, hopefully, as we wrestled through some of this, that will answer some of those questions. Yeah. There are lots of reasons, good reasons, to study church history, lots of benefits that we can gain from studying church history. But here are just a few that I I jotted down as we we start this study uh, of church history. So uh, you can write these down. There's not not a space on your notes for them, but you could write them on the side. But um, a couple things that we gain by studying church history. Number one, it protects us from error. So an Irish philosopher once said, those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it. So the basic knowledge of church history keeps individual Christians and churches as, as, a, as a whole from repeating the same doctrinal and practical errors, foolish mistakes that have happened in former days. So even, Jubin, what you were saying about there's some, some versions of church history where you're like, oh my gosh, that was terrible. What were they thinking? Well, hopefully... As we look back even at those errors that they were making, we can avoid them ourselves. It will protect us from error. Secondly, it reminds us of God's faithfulness. So church history is the story of God's unfailing faithfulness to his people through persecution, through their mess-ups, through all kinds of challenges and calamities. The church still exists today. The gospel is still being proclaimed today. Christians are still gathering in the name of Jesus today. And scripture encourages us to recount all of God's marvelous deeds, including the ones that are not included in our Bible, like the ones that we see throughout church history. Number three, studying church history gives us motivation to persevere. So we desperately need encouragement to carry on. And one way that God provides encouragement to do that is through a faithful cloud of witnesses who've gone before us and who have finished the race that was set before them. We even see that in in the book of Hebrews where we hear about the hall of faith. And then chapter 12 of Hebrews talks about like we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Let's press on. So that's why biographies can actually be uh, one of the most spiritual books we can read. You know, not just theology textbooks or uh, other other books on things to do with Christianity. But biographies can be such a blessing to our souls to spur us on. Four. Um, studying church history challenges our chronological snobbery. Have you guys ever heard of chronological snobbery before? This was something that C.S. Lewis coined, a phrase that he coined, but it's the idea that today we know far more and far better than people in the past, than anyone else throughout history. Because, you know, we're so enlightened, we're so wise, we have so many resources and books and things. Well, it's just not the case. I'm constantly humbled when I read people that have died many, many, many years before me and thinking about their meditations on scripture and their understandings of God's character and his glory and his word. Um, And we see like some of these people uh, were walking so closely with the Lord and they knew so much about his word. Five, it inspires us as we see ordinary men, ordinary women doing extraordinary things. Um, I'm an ordinary guy, and it might be tempting to think, oh, what difference do I really make 
But as we look back in church history, we see God working through ordinary men and women to do amazing things for his glory. And it's important to remember that this is our family history. So as we read about these people, uh, it inspires us because these are our brothers. These are our sisters in the Lord Jesus. And finally, all of this leads us to give God the glory for the things that he's done. And so it should, ins- it should inspire us to worship God as we think about church history. Because God has been keeping his promises. God is doing extraordinary things through ordinary people. He's being faithful to preserve his church. Let me just read from, from Matthew's gospel. This is what uh, Jesus said to his disciples. He said, who do, you people say that I, who do people say that I am? They said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon, Simon spoke up and replied, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who's in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And that promise that was first to Peter upon his confession of Jesus as the Christ has continued and God has kept his promises. The church prevails today uh, and Satan and his schemes and the world and all the things that are going on in it will not prevail against the church. So hopefully as we study this, this will give us encouragement. It will uh, spur us on um, and lead us to glorify God for all the things he's doing. Well, that's why we study church history. Now let's dive into our first week. And you can see on your handout there, we begin by looking at the book of Acts. So if you, um, if you turn to the front sheet of your handout, you'll see Acts 17 is there. And this is what, uh, do you remember what happened when Paul and his companions were accused, what they were accused of in Acts 17? When they had come and they brought the gospel and they went to the synagogue as Paul ordinarily did and they preached the gospel and they started persuading people about Jesus being the Christ, they were told uh, that um, these men have turned the world upside down. And they've come here also. Uh, So if you look at, at the front, it says, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And so the, the thing that they were charged with doing was turning the world upside down. Because the Christian claim of the death and resurrection of Jesus from the dead, his resurrection from the dead in fulfillment of the Old Testament, this message was so radical that it transformed people's lives and it turned the world upside down for three reasons. Because the claim was a claim of historical fact. It wasn't a myth. It wasn't a legend. They weren't claiming that it happened uh, at some random other place or time. They were saying this has happened in history. It's happened now and it couldn't be mythologized. Second, unlike the Roman pagan religion, it was an exclusive claim. So during this time in, in the Roman Empire, during the, the first century... The Romans were glad for people to worship all kinds of different gods, but making exclusive claims to say that Jesus was the only God 
and the only way to be reconciled to God and that all other paths led to hell, that was revolutionary. Um, That turned their world upside down. And thirdly, it was an all-encompassing claim. So the claim of Christianity was a demand for utmost allegiance to Jesus. To, to, this allegiance even displaced allegiance to family, to tradition, or even to the emperor. And so because of these implications, Christians were, Christianity was seen as inherently destabilizing to society. Looking back 2,000 years later, we can confirm that the complaint of the Thessalonians, as recorded by Luke, was not an overstatement. Christianity has turned the world upside down, even today. Or rather, Christianity has turned the world right side up. So in many ways, this is what we're going to be unpacking as we explore the history of the church is how the world, how the world was turned right side up through Christianity and the ex- expansion of the gospel. And so this first class, we're going to consider the earliest church from the book of Acts up until just the beginning of the third uh, century, the AD 313. That's on your handout there. You'll see the dates at the top. We're going to consider what happened. And we're going to be thinking about it... Um, we're going to be thinking about it through its confrontation with Rome, its overwhelming growth, and then, um, yeah, the, the reasons for its, its growth on, on the eve of the reign of an emperor called Constantine. That's what we're going to be considering today. So the earliest Christians uh, had confrontation with Rome. Christianity emerged from within Judaism and developed in the first centuries through a series of encounters, first with the Jews, then with the Gentiles, and then finally broader with Rome. And we see that through the book of Acts. If you read the book of Acts, it starts in Jerusalem and Judea, then it moves on to the Gentiles, and then it moves all the way to Rome. And so um, when it finally gets to Rome, the Romans, to the Romans, Christianity appeared quite similar to Judaism in many respects. But it was different, of course. Christians were similar to Jews because they were devoted to God's word, the scriptures. They refused to be associated with other cults and other worship practices, just like the Jews. They wouldn't have food offered to idols. And they insisted on a strict sexual ethic, which was very different than, than what was common in Roman society. But there were critical differences, too, between Judaism and Christianity. Because unlike Judaism, Christians were not simply content to exist and to survive. They were actually determined to expand by winning converts. And this is exactly what the other class that is going on right now, actually at Michael's house, is all about. Sharing our faith, wanting to evangelize. And so that's what made Christianity distinct from Judaism. They wanted to share this message with other people and convert them to Christianity, lead them to put their faith and trust in, in Christ. And that was therefore considered a destabilizing force within the Roman Empire. For the most part, people were quite happy to just worship whatever they wanted to worship and not, not worry about anyone else. But Christians were distinct. 
And so to understand why that, why did Christianity in particular become a destabilizing force to Rome, we have to understand Roman society, Roman religion. So the, the landscape in, in Rome was, it was incredibly diverse. Of course, these, they were an empire. They had conquered many, many different peoples. And so they had a lot of different peoples under the Roman Empire that worshipped all kinds of gods. It was very inclusive. In fact, they prided themselves on how tolerant they were and how inclusive they were. Does this sound familiar? These things are still happening today. Um, and as this, as this historian kind of um, wrote, it, uh, he says, by supposing that the various deities were either the same god under different names or local administrations of a supreme deity, it was possible to give all the cults a loose unity. Say we're all the same. We're all, we all believe the same things, okay? But the Roman government was in practice only tolerant of any cult, provided that they did not encourage any kind of weakening to the society or division amongst the society. Indeed, one reason for Roman military success was believed to be, so why, why did they think the Romans did so well and conquered so many people? It was because they worshipped all the gods and they accepted them. And so they were all on their side. So they, you know, they had Rome's back. Um, but they could not be exclusive. You could not say my God's right and your God's wrong because that would destabilize the empire as a whole. So they considered themselves very inclusive, very tolerant. But really, if you think about it, there, there was an exclusiveness and an intolerance even to their system. Because if you, if you disagreed with it, you were not tolerated. And you were, you were an outcast. So it was an intolerant tolerance, you could say. Which is like an oxymoron. So to refuse to be part of this soup of religions and all worship together the pagan Roman cult was a political as well as a religious statement. And so you would be construed as being opposed to the Roman Empire. And that's where Christians ran into trouble, right? Because they were seen as being kind of opposed to the great Roman Empire. And so um, that's where in in AD 64, um, you know, Christians were already sort of seen as kind of a, a divisive group. But in AD 64, there was a great fire in Rome. It was it went on for nine days. At that time, Nero was the emperor. And rumors started to circulate that this fire was a result of Nero. The emperor was the cause of this fire. And so instead of, um, instead of you know, getting flack for it, he blamed Christians who were already unpopular. He said it was the Christians that have done this. And so um, later... Um, it's a, a later historian, a Roman historian from about 50 years later, wrote, To kill these rumors, Nero charged and tortured some people hated for their evil practices, a group popularly called Christians. And the founder of this sect was Christus, who had been put to death by the governor of Judea called Pontius Pilate when Tiberius was emperor. And so he blamed the Christians and everybody turned against them. And he went on to say, uh, first, those who, this is the historian went on to say, first, those who confessed to being Christians were arrested and on the basis of their testimony, a great number were condemned, although not so much for the fire itself as for their hatred for humankind. 
So Christians started to be thought of as, be, as like hating mankind because they were going against the Roman emperor and to go against the Roman emperor was to go against the whole empire, which was to bring about destruction for the, for the empire. So before killing the Christians, Nero used them to amuse the people. And this is where you might have seen this in uh, movies and things where there were the Colosseums. So some Christians were dressed in furs. They were uh, torn apart by dogs or other animals. Some were crucified. Still others were set on fire early in the night so that they might illuminate. And Nero opened his own gardens for these shows. So Christians started being persecuted under um, this, this situation. Can you want something? Sure. So with the, the hatred of humankind, remember Mark had said that... Um, like the Christians, right, they're only going to worship one God. They're not going to be willing to worship all other gods. And Romans, right, they pride themselves on their inclusivity. They think they're winning all these wars because they're worshiping all these gods. So the Romans are saying they're haters of humankind because the Christians' refusal to participate in Roman worship, for instance, worship of the emperor cult or worship of all the other gods, they would say because of that, these gods are going to punish all of the Roman world. Mm. Um, and so they're like, do you hate us? Like, you're doing these things. And so, like, for that reason, yeah. they're believing that that's why, like, they hate humankind. They're, they're bringing about, like, floods and natural disasters yeah. and all the fault of the Christians. So not just, like, warfare, losing in war, but even, like, natural disasters were thought of as the God's retribution on Famine. the Christians. Like, yeah. Whatever is like. And in addition to this, Christians were then like gossiped about and, and, and rumors spread that they were incestuous and that they were cannibals, that they ate other humans because they were they charged with incest because they called one another brother and sister, even if they were married. So it was considered like, oh, you married your sister. Gross. That's incestuous. And cannibals because they talked about eating and drinking flesh. Um, which obviously has to do with the Lord's Supper. Um, so all of these kind of rumors kind of spread and suddenly being a Christian became quite difficult. Now, it, it was not a universal widespread persecution that was like an official thing yet, but uh, it was difficult. And so facing this kind of stigma, facing this opposition, being thought of in this way was made it very difficult to, to publicly identify yourself with Jesus, to be a Christian. And so you can imagine if you think about the book of Hebrews, we've been studying that on Wednesday nights, like that gives you some context to understand why they were tempted to go back to Judaism. Because Judaism at least was acceptable in, in the Roman society, whereas Christianity was considered hateful, it was considered wicked, it was considered incestuous, and they were cannibals. So get a, to... to um, Get a glimpse of how early Christians were viewed from, we, get, we can look at some letters from this time period, from the early hundreds. Uh, one governor writing to another governor, he wrote to ask like, hey, what, do we, what should we do about these Christians? How should we deal with them? Uh, one, of the, one of the officials wrote, for the moment, this is the line I've been taking with all the persons brought to me on the charge of being Christians. I've asked them in person, are you a Christian? If they admit it, I say again, a question, I ask the question a second time. I ask it a third time and then I warn them that punishment will await them if they say, yes, they're a Christian. If they persist, then I order them to be led away for execution. 
For whatever the nature of their admission, I am convinced that their stubbornness and their unshakable obstinacy ought not to go unpunished. There have been others similarly fanatical who are from, from Roman citizenship. So there were some Roman citizens who were Christians, which is amazing. By the year 112, this is, this is, uh, there were a number of Roman Christians. I've entered them on a list of persons to be sent to Rome for trial. And then the other emperor wrote, the other leader wrote back, essentially saying, good job. That's great. Don't seek out all of the Christians. Don't go hunting them down. But if, you are, if they are brought to you, that's how you should treat them. Basically kill them. And so it, it, in these letters, you can go and read these letters. These, and I can give you the, I think that, yeah, Pliny's letter to the Emperor Trajan, you'll see on your sheet. You can go read it online. It's easy to go read. Um, but what they, what they show us is that it was precarious to, to be a Christian and to say so publicly. So they found themselves for the first, first time in, in, in their existence as being kind of really in a difficult situation. They were viewed as members of an illicit sect. That means that they were, it was not legal. They, and so they didn't have legal protections, unlike Judaism, which did have legal protections. And so if you look there, you'll see this Latin phrases, religious licita, which means approved religion versus a superstition. Su- superstitio. I don't know Latin. It's just, it's just uh, in your notes. Now you know a little Latin, guys. Um, but what it meant was that um, what, what they were seen, of, seen as was like not a legal religion, but a superstition. And that superstition was based on pledging allegiance to a criminal who had been uh, convicted and put to death by Rome itself. And so by submitting to this person rather than to the emperor and to the civil authorities, you were considered like anti-Roman. And it was obviously dif- difficult. So by refusing to participate then in public sacrifices and worship of the Roman gods, Christians were ironically uh, accused of being atheists now because they would refuse to worship the gods. And so they, they thought, well, they don't believe in the gods then. Um, of course, they believed in one god. Um, and Roman public worship, worship was seen kind of as essential for protection for the people of Rome uh, from their enemies and from natural disasters like Evan mentioned. And so that's why they became kind of considered haters of mankind. So during the first two centuries, there was persecution um, against them. Um, and any kind of things that went wrong in the empire were kind of considered to be the fault of the Christians and were blamed on Christians. They were easy to be a, a scapegoat. But this persecution was not all, it was not continuous throughout the first few centuries, and it was not like uh, instituted empire wide. It was more local, it was more sporadic. Um, and before the third century, the government didn't really take Christianity too seriously because there weren't a huge number of Christians. And so they gave the church um, breathing space to expand and to deal with, with internal problems, problems that were within the church. So the persecution wasn't quite as bad as it could have been. And the problems that they faced inside the church is kind of your second major point on the page two of your handout. 
And it was the threat of Gnosticism. Before we turn there, any questions about the first part? Kind of their, uh, Christianity coming, and coming, coming head to head with the Roman Empire and those things. Any questions? Yeah. Did it also have a, an impact on Roman economics? So Christians, uh, not, ju- not just being superstition versus uh, organized religion or approved religion. Yeah. Um, was it also, did it in some way impact, begin to impact livelihoods? Because when I read about Thessalonica, one of the reasons was the silversmiths were upset. Yes. And, is it again very local or was, is there any on it? I'm not 100% sure if that would have had a major impact economically, like empire wide, because, um, but you certainly do see that in the book of Acts where those that were making and crafting idols and that was their, that was their livelihood, that was their business, like obviously suffered as more and more people became Christians. They were like, we're not buying those, we don't want to worship those. And, it, and you see in Acts that it kind of incites kind of. Uh, disapproval of them but i'm not sure about net, like empire wide and probably not because at this stage like it's still such a minority um the reason why right persecution is only based on local governments like whether they choose to it's because if there's a lot of christians in that area mm. then they're going to crack down in that area you have more of an economic uh, effect but likely in other areas where they're even more of a minority it's yeah to be less impactful yeah i think that makes sense so the threat of Gnosticism, have you guys ever heard of Gnosticism before? Put your hand up if you've heard of Gnosticism. Okay, a couple people have heard of it. All right, so actually already by the time the New Testament epistles are written, we have some evidence of something called Gnosticism in the early church. And Gnosticism was a threat from within the church. This was something not from without, like persecution, but from within. So in the Corinthian church, if you read the, letter to, uh, the letters to Corinth, we see that there's some divisions and rival groups in, in, the, in the church. There's all kinds of things going on in Corinth, like lots of problems from within. But one of them is that they shared, the, the, that these camps kind of shared a, a Gnostic presupposition about um, ideas, basically th- theology about kind of our body. And there were some who were saying that there was an insignificance to the body, that the body and physical matter was was evil and it was bad and it was weak and the spirit was good and uh, needed to be freed from the body. On the uh, on one side, some were arguing that physical acts mattered, didn't matter at all. So all kinds of physical, sinful acts, sexual acts were didn't didn't really matter. It was okay um, because it was really the spirit that matters. And so this gave themselves over to sexual immorality, which is one of the things that Paul is dealing with in in Corinth. But on the other side, another group was taking an extreme ascetic approach. Asceticism is basically like denying the body. So one was like licentious, like I can do whatever I want with my body. The other was saying we must not do anything good with our body. We must like kind of hurt the body and and not not uh, enjoy anything for the body. Um, so they discouraged even sexual intimacy in marriage. And you can see the, the, the evidences of that in, in, in the letter to Corinth. They downplayed the significance of the resurrection of the body. Kind of just said it's really about your, your spirit. That's what matters most. But they kind of, and that's why in 1 Corinthians 15, he talks so much. Paul talks about 
why it was absolutely necessary that Jesus rose bodily from the grave. That he, he didn't just rise spiritually, that he rose physically. And so this is really instructive for us today. Now, you might think I've never heard of Gnosticism and I don't know anyone that follows that. But in fact, in, in our age, we actually have some similar kinds of ideas in the confusion about gender and sexuality and the body. Um, that uh, we see that even that a, a radical rejection of the goodness of the body and an idolatrous obsession with the body are rooted in the same unbiblical errors of Gnosticism. We see that really in some ways in the transgender movement, which sort of denies clearly physical aspects of who we are and says that that doesn't matter. I identify a different way than I'm physically made and things like that. So these ideas are just sort of repackaged and resurfaced in different ways at different times. Gnosticism uh, was not a defined set, though. It kind of manifested, as we've seen in Corinth and even today, in lots of different ways. There wasn't like a, a group called the Gnostics that they all had the same agreed upon ideas, but it was a, a, there were similar connecting um, root presuppositions about physical bodies versus spiritual aspects of who we are. So the definition that you have there is that Gnosticism, it's a generic term, uh, that's used primarily to refer to a theosophical adaptations of Christianity. That means like mixing theology from scripture with mysticism and spiritual ideas from, uh, from pagan ideas and propagating that. Um, it, 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 it created all kinds of sects. So like there were dozens of rival sects with, which broke out within early uh, within the early church between 80, 50, uh, 80 and 150. Now, the extent to which Gnosticism predated Christianity, we don't really know exactly when it emerged. When did it, like, where did it start? But its essence was, was the division, like I said, of spirit and matter, a radical dualism between body and spirit. And as, as we saw in Corinth, this dualism led either to radical asceticism, denying the body. So things like start, you know, maybe like extreme fasting, denying yourself physical uh, well-being, or radical licentiousness, which led to just embracing gluttony and lustful and sexual idolatry. So that was uh, Gnosticism started to emerge even within the church, and. It, it was in some ways attractive to Christians. Um, in some ways it was attractive because it explained the origin of evil, that evil came about, that it, it's because of our physical aspect, our, our uh, bodies that caused the evil in us. Um, that, uh, and it was also attractive because uh, it could myth, uh, mythologize the creation account in Genesis and say, well, really, this isn't what it, what it seems to say. It's really, they would, they would claim that the material world was not created good, but it was created inherently and in, irretrievably evil. And so they taught that the, the soul was imprisoned in the body and they denied the resurrection of the body. And this mainly consisted in a memorization of certain facts and knowledge they collected amulets that were supposed to help them 
navigate their journey towards God through death. And so it was, it was very strange, but it was, it was attractive to Christians. And that might sound crazy to us today that these ideas would be attractive to Christians, but it posed a strong temptation for Christians because they, they may have wanted to soften their beliefs about the Bible to fit in with Roman society. And these things would have been kind of accepted with, amongst Roman society. So the influence of Roman society would have, and wanting to fit in and not be as distinct from the world would have been a temptation to them. And if they embraced these things, that would keep them from facing some of the persecution that they faced, especially when they said like, you know, um, they would not participate in the activities that much of Roman society were doing, like these sexual things or eating foods that were sacrificed to idols and that sort of stuff. And we read about that even in Romans. Um, so, uh, let me continue. They were kind of teaching that these external acts, they didn't affect our inner devotion to God. And so they could, they could excuse themselves participating in these idolatrous behaviors. The second reason it was attractive was because it downplayed um, the Christian claim to the historicity of the gospel. So much of Roman religions consisted in mythologizing everything, saying that these are not historical facts, they're just myths that teach us about, um, they're, they're from ancient times that teach us about spiritual realities. And so this was a way to kind of soften the claims of Christianity and be like, oh, no, to be a Christian, you don't have to really believe that Jesus died and then physically rose again. But what that teaches us, his death is like selflessness and sacrificial and his resurrection is like the hope of being enlightened to a new spiritual mind or things like that. Even those ideas are not, you know, they get repackaged every couple of decades or 100 years um, you can read books that were written 100 years ago that will say s- things like that. Um, even as recent as the 20th century, a German theologian called Rudolf Boltmann made a career off of these teachings, uh, mythologi- uh, mythological approach to the Bible and saying, no, th- people have been reading this too literally. We have to understand this is myth, it's legend, and it's in- meant to teach us other things, but it's nothing new. And so... At this point, the church and Christians had to kind of respond to these things that were happening within the church. So how do you think Christians would or should respond to things like this within the church? What do you guys think? They were asking, they wanted to follow the law, like circumcision and all that. Yeah. It's mentioned in Galatians or... Mm-hmm. Does that also come under this? Like, because they're trying to mix to, like, you know, they're not just following Christ, but they want to take in a little bit of the law. And does that also fall under this category? Well, I think with that, it's a little bit different because these were not ideas that were removed from the, the, the scriptures and that were taught from God. So being... A Jew and becoming a Christian and wanting to continue to keep some of the Jewish practices was distinct from this was like mixing non-biblical truth. Uh, So I think it's a little different. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, like Paul talks about like those that 
that were Jews when they, you know, they kind of talk about this in Acts, actually, in Acts 15, where they kind of wrestle with like, well, what about the old covenant and those laws and how they fit with the new covenant? You don't have to become a Jew to become a Christian, but you, you don't have to become un-Jewish to become a Christian. Does that make sense? Yeah, but, uh, but later on, I think even the Jews were also asking the Christians to ah yes requiring that people be circumcised to become a christian or become jews yeah yeah there that's when paul will say like absolutely not you're not a christian by following the old covenant yeah but a little distinct than than the gnostic gnostic situation more of the how do we understand the continuity and discontinuity of the of the bible even just thinking broadly about that, with what you're talking about, it's legalism and pharisaicalism. And so they're actually like making what it requires to be a Christian more stringent, more like more tight. Whereas Gnosticism really was making what it requires to be a Christian much broader. Mm. Um, so even in kind of the broad direction of where they're going, Gnosticism is opening it up to we can include these things from these pagan religions. We can participate in these things Romans are doing. Um, and it's not an issue... Um, uh, just because of a different presupposition and premise. Mm. Yeah. Well, keep moving because I'm already realizing we're running out of time and there's a lot to cover. So my apologies for that. But basically what they did in response was a number of things. But one of the things that they did was started writing books about it. So I have one of them here that's written. You've got it in your handout. This is uh, by Irenaeus of Leon um, from the second century he wrote a book called on the apostolic preaching or demonstration of apostolic preaching in your handouts you can buy these they're still published today some weird people like me buy them and read them but but it's amazing and it's surprisingly accessible yeah you know, it's written like 1900 years ago but it's not confused it's not that confusing and it actually ends up being like oh wow this is like the same thing that like we teach in our church today there's a Every once in a while you find something that's a little odd or something, but it's shocking just like how easy to understand and it's like, oh, this is the same faith. Yeah, same faith. 1900 years later, totally different context, totally different culture, totally different everything. And he's saying like, this is what the apostles taught. And it's just what you find in your New Testament. So it's, you know, um, that's what they did was one of the things they did was church leaders started to say, no, this is these these ideas are wrong. You even see that in Paul's letters in, in, in the letters to the Corinthians, or even if you read Col- Colossians, you'll, you'll see that too. Um, he's going against some of these things and saying that the church needs to hold fast to the truth. And so this, this guy, uh, Irenaeus, he wrote a book called Against Heresies, where he basically, that's where we know most of what we understand about Gnosticism is not from the Gnostics, but it's from him arguing against them and their heresies. That was one of the things. One of the cool things is, think about how early this is. This is super early in in church history. Irenaeus, in his books, he, these are so uh, steeped in quotes from scripture that he quotes from every New Testament book except for Jude, 2 Peter, and 3 John. Now that's important to know because this is like so early. Think about when these letters were written. They weren't written at point zero. They were written, you know, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. But this dude has all of them, almost, 
um, just a, a few decades later. And he understood them to be scripture. So we see that the canon of God's word was already beginning to be formed. So he writes and he kind of just basically says these guys are crazy and they, they don't agree with the Bible. They don't agree with the Old Testament, don't agree with the New Testament. And they don't agree with the, the apostles in general and the teaching of the apostles. And so here we see that there was a need for unity in faith, a unity in order within the church. And so that's what the church did. They responded. So they basically said we need to go back to what the apostles taught and the apostolic origins. And we need to have a united faith. And so um, first thing that they did was they, uh, uh, Irenaeus, established apostolic succession. And... Basically, what that meant was that Irenaeus, this is not apostolic succession like the Roman Catholics understand it, like there's this perfect line that is the chosen person to be the spokesperson for Christ on earth like the Pope. No, what he was saying was, I can trace all of the pastors from the time of Paul and Peter till today. And you know what they all taught? The same thing, the same thing I teach. Not what the Gnostics are teaching, they taught the same gospel. And so that's what he meant by apostolic succession. And so he, the, the Roman Catholic Church has kind of distorted what he was talking about, Irenaeus was talking about, to claim some supreme power has been laid upon the Pope and he has the right to speak for everyone. That's not at all what he meant. What Irenaeus was talking about was saying it's very easy to demonstrate that the same gospel was being preached in the second century as it was right back in the first century. Um, and you can just trace the line of all these pastors. So that was the first thing that he did was establish apostolic succession. Secondly, they needed to say, well, you know, uh, what's the basis for this? What's the authority for these teachings? And that was found in the canon of Scripture. And so they, these other Gnostics said, we have secret hidden knowledge. We have these secret hidden books. We've got um, Gnostic gospels and things like that. And um, basically what the church did was came together and said, no, we all agree. We've all been using these books, speaking of the New Testament canon, as our, um, as our uh, authoritative texts. And so they, they weren't bestowing authority upon the Bible books. They were just recognizing the authority that was already there. They looked at other books, too, and they said, these can be helpful, but they don't claim to be from the apostles and they don't claim the authority of God's word. And so um, it was amazing that there was just already they didn't. It wasn't like they had a big, long meeting and argued like, well, should this book, should this book, should this book? There was already a huge amount of agreement about which books were already recognized as authoritative for the church. And you see there in your quote from. F.F. Uh, F. Bruce, the New Testament books did not become authoritative for the church because they were formally included in the canonical list. On the contrary, the church just included them because she'd already seen them and understood them and regarded them as divinely inspired. Um, and these, it, uh, these uh, kind of first ecclesial, uh, ecclesiastical councils, that means church councils, they took place in like modern-day Algeria, modern-day Tunisia uh, in the 4th century. They, um, they didn't impose something new. They just codified what was already the general practice of these communities. So that was the second thing that churches kind of did in response to these 
false teachings that were going on. Um, the third one you see there is the Apostles' Creed or um, the, the, the rule of faith. That's what a creed is. And this was basically just summarizing, like, what does the, te- what does the Bible teach about the Bible and God? Um, or what does the Bible teach about Christ and the Father and the Spirit? And so we've got the Apostles' Creed. In fact, we're going to read the Apostles' Creed later today in our service. Uh, and Christians have been affirming this for hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, it's a very simple, short statement about, I believe in God the Father Almighty and in Christ Jesus, His only Son, our Lord, born of the Holy Spirit, Virgin Mary, under Pontius Pilate, was crucified and buried, and on the th- third day rose again from the dead. So there you see, like, these were the things that they were wrestling with, right? It was about the, the physical death and the resurrection of Jesus, and it goes on. And, interestingly... Pretty early on, this creed, the Apostles' Creed, became a requirement for all new believers for baptism. And so that's another way that we see that the church responded was that they started to have a kind of a structure and an order to how they processed people to be brought into the church. How did they process people to be baptized in the church? And that's where you get your second, uh, uh, well, it's not on your sheet, but the unity of their order. Like, how did they organize themselves? How did the church organize themselves? So we saw about the, 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 the faith, what they believed was through apostolic succession, the scriptures, and then forming statements of faith or creeds, and then also through their organization. So they grew in unity and uniformity doctrinally in the first three centuries in response to these, out, uh, these inward attacks from Gnosticism, And so they started to organize themselves. They started to have membership in the church and take that seriously. We talked about baptism to be admitted into the church. Each Sunday, the church gathered for what they called their Thanksgiving or Eucharist, in which the people who had been baptized ate bread and drank wine in a service that outsiders and non-baptized persons were prohibited from participating in by deacons who guarded the doors. We don't do that at our church today, but what we do is we say, like, if you're not a baptized believer, this meal is not for you. Do not participate in this. But it's really interesting that it talks about, like, how the church started to do this very early on. Um, and they saw this meal that they shared together, this, this Lord's Supper. We try to communicate this when we teach on the Lord's Supper, but this was the essential expression of what membership in the church meant. This meant to be part of one body is to enjoy this meal together. It's like the family meal together. So um, sometimes people were, if they had serious moral fault, they were excluded from this meal for a time. Basically, they started to discipline people in the church if they were, if they were in sin. They also established church leaders. So Ignatius... Um, spoke, uh, we have writings from Ignatius where he speaks about the churches possessing a lead bishop with presbytery of elders, like a, a, a group of elders, a plurality of elders, and deacons. So those were the two offices. You had um, elders and deacons, and you had a lead bishop as the head of the, the, the elders. But they were considered um, the, same, the same role. There were, two, there were two offices in the church. Bishops or presbyters and deacons. We see that taught in Philippians 1, Acts 20, Titus 1. And 
These were, um, we have instructions for how to appoint these people from early church in a book called the Didache. Again, you can find this online. It's a teaching of church order um, that was written between AD 70 and 110. It's instructions for a local ministry um, which didn't have like an itinerant minister coming to them, reflecting on the qualifications for elders. And as you'd imagine, they reflect what we see in the New Testament in Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3. They also had established deacons in the church. Um, we see that in Acts 6. They were, uh, and, and the elders were responsible for the ministry of word and prayer um, and the ministry of the table. And deacons helped the, the church, do, the, the elders to do that. So the deacons were responsible, and we can read about this. They were responsible for assisting the elders in distributing the, the Lord's Supper. So this was basically our Rahul Ravisankar, you know, the deacon of Lord's Supper. Um, deacons took charge of church's property and administered charitable relief. Elders oversaw teaching and discipline in the church. Um, so, I mean, what we just see is, is many of the things that we uh, try to implement in our church and seek to, to live out, we see even really early on in the life of the history of the church. Now, the, the idea of bishops, which, you know, they began by being the same role as elders, but kind of like the lead elder, sort of like a senior pastor or something like that. But they, over time, gradually became kind of distinct, more distinct from the, the elders than, than we would have in our church. Um, but that was, that was often because of what was, you know, if you think about it, you had some of these men who stood up as leaders and you could have, you could trace who was the lead bishop, you know, throughout the history of the church. We just talked about how um, the, uh, Irenaeus did that. Um, and so basically they, they had to take the lead and they took point. And so that's where the idea of like bishops that oversee whole uh, regions came from but really early on that was not the case um, he was the the bishop was just considered the first among equals he was a fellow presbyter with the other elders um, even this early on we see that uh, in historical documents that the choice of the candidate of bishop rested upon the whole congregation but later on, that changed. So who chose the pastors of the church? At the beginning, it was the congregation. But later on, it became the political leaders. Um, Christian emperors would say, oh, well, I'll make you the bishop. And of course, you can imagine that was not free of uh, abuse. So in, in all of this, in all of what we're thinking about, the threat of, uh, and the testing of the church, instead of harming the church... It actually strengthened the church to have a unity of faith, a unity of order, the same uh, clarifying their doctrinal beliefs and practices that had been handed down from the apostles. And so the threat of Gnosticism in the first and second centuries helped develop greater uniformity in church practice and doctrinal belief. And so, um, yeah, that, that's really the effects that it had. It actually blessed the church. Some of these challenges that they faced and thinking about these challenges you know gets us to and and how they actually bless the church is the is the the fourth point where we get to expansion and and growth that's on uh, 
the third page of your handout. Um, this bit is, is incredible. So you, you kind of wonder, you know, you see in the book of Acts already that Christianity spread from Jerusalem all the way to Turkey, Greece. And by AD 60, it was at the very heart of Rome in the Roman Empire. Uh, but it doesn't end there. By 150 AD, we have reports of Christians scattered throughout every part of the empire from eastern part of Mediterranean, all across North Africa, even to what is now uh, modern day France, as well as it spread beyond the empire. So Rome hadn't gone this far, but Christianity did and the gospel did. It went all the way to India. It went all the way as far as Ethiopia. And so... Um, as one Christian wrote, we have filled all that belongs to you, Lord, the cities, the, the fortresses, the free towns, the very camps, the palace, the Senate, the forum. We leave empty only the pagan temp- temples. The only place Christianity hadn't spread was like into the pagan temp- temples. And so it's, it's pretty amazing. Christianity exploded, expanded. Um, and you might wonder, it'd be a good Good question. Why do you think Christianity grew so much? Why was it? Uh, I guess the answer to that question is always God, right? But in terms of human terms, what do you think gave such meteoric rise to Christianity and helped it spread? Persecution. Yeah, we see in, in the book of Acts, persecution meant Christians fled and went to other places. So that was one reason. Yeah. Yeah. So people loved the messenger, then the message. So yeah. you had a doctor that went and practiced his or her profession, mm. or a nurse who went and practiced his or her teacher, and people loved them for who they are, yeah. appreciated them, and followed what they taught. I yeah. think uh, look at Dr. David Livingston. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, we're going to hit on that in the answers that I give here. But yeah, as Christians went with this message of love and loved people and used the gifts and abilities that God had given them, it, it was attractive. It was attractive to many. And so if you look in your handout, we've got the witness of charity. So one of the reasons that the, the, maybe the main factor that caused Christianity to expand so much was that Christians cared for one another and they cared for the most vulnerable. So along with the faithful preaching of this message of God's love for sinners and in sending Jesus to die on the cross for sinners and rise again so that they could be reconciled to God, Christians enacted that message of love by giving themselves sacrificially. And there were two places that this was especially true. The sanctity of marriage, love within marriages, and the sanctity of life. And so this was really moving and encouraging to me. But the fact that Christians treated women as equals, men, Christian men treated women as equals, and, and Christian men were held to a standard of selfless love towards their wives... Um, made Christianity very attractive uh, to to women and gave a listening ear to many women. And so um, when Christian husbands uh, were abusive or uh, unfaithful to their wives, they were held to account, unlike what was normal in the Roman Empire at that time. Um, It was considered, obviously, a bad thing for 
for Christian husbands to do that. But within Rome, that was just treated as normal. Um, so women were held to equal standard and equal dignity to, to their husbands. And that was revolutionary. By contrast to Christian behavior, the second century poet and satirist, this, uh, this guy portrayed a society in which large numbers of people were dangerously addicted to ever more extreme abuses and sexual behaviors. Nothing was considered shameful. And so they, um, they had stage plays that celebrated all kinds of horrible things. And so early on, Christians were just super countercultural in, a, in opposing these things and saying, this is vile, this is wicked, and it's displeasing to God. Christians may have been mocked and maligned for their what was considered repressive views of sex, but in the long run, their practice and example won the day. In addition to that, their view of life, the second area where they challenged the public morality of the Roman world was by their teaching and example on the sanctity of life in all forms. This love showed itself in caring for the poor. The the Christians took care of the, the widows. They took care of the orphans. They took care of people when they had very little. They gave sacrificially. We see that in the New Testament. You know, you're giving out of your poverty to help other brothers and sisters. They, they did it. They provided burials for poorer members who couldn't afford that. They showed hospitality to Christians that were traveling. They gave generously to the church and, and in turn they supported others. Um, by the year 251, um, the church in Rome... In addition to supporting the ministers of the church and paying for the ministers, the church was also supporting 1,500 widows and needy people. And it, uh, it also showed itself in caring not just for the widows and the poor, but also for the unborn. Um, at this time, across the Roman world, this is a quote from a book called Dominion, um, the, there were, it was not uncommon to hear wailing at the sides of roads or on rubbish tips. Babies abandoned by their parents were a common sight. Others might have been dropped down drains there to perish in their hundreds. This is just rough to read. It's hard to read. There was an, the odd eccentric philosopher or a few others who questioned these practices and said how inhumane they were. Indeed, these, there were cities who by ancient law made it a positive virtue to do this. Condemning to death deformed infants for the good of the state was seen as, a, as an honorable virtue uh, in, in some of the same ways that we see like we were hearing about earlier because they thought of, you know, this was a curse from the gods and so we need to cleanse ourselves of this or that kind of thing. Um, girls in particular were liable to being winnowed ruthlessly. Those who were rescued from the wayside would invariably be raised as slaves. So people would go through these um, rubbish tips and collect female babies and take them and make them slaves or, or turn them into prostitutes. Brothels were full of women who as infants had been abandoned by their parents, so much so that it had long provided uh, writers with lots of writing for their fictions. And only a few people, only a few people had uh, opposed this kind of behavior. Pretty much everyone else had always taken it for granted until the emergence of Christians. 
What the implications might be for infants that were tossed out with the trash was best demonstrated by a Christian woman named Macrina. Macrina was the eldest of nine siblings. She had two famous older brothers, who, uh, sorry, younger brothers, Basil and Gregory. They were early church fathers. There's writings by them. You can find them online. And they would do tours to these places where trash was thrown out and refuse was uh, thrown out. And infant girls that they rescued, they would take home. They would raise them as their own. And this lady, Macrina, believed that within even the most defenseless newborn child, there might be a glimpse of a touch of the divine. She knew what she was doing was God's work. It's, it's crazy to think that, but that made Christians stand out so much from the world. And they said, why, you know, why do these Christians love one another like this? Why do they do that? And it was because of the gospel. So even as they were mocked and persecuted and misrepresented and called, you know, cannibals and uh, people that hated humankind, there was a curiosity because like, how can we say that about them? But these Christians, they, they care so well for widows. They rescue babies from dumpsters. Um, and so this was the paradox of the church. And it was that, uh, it, that was the religious revolutionary movement was, was not political, but it was through the power of love. Christians never aspired and aimed for possession of power in this world. It's like Peter says in 1 Peter 2, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, They'll see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And so Christianity spread because of love, which should, be an, it should inspire us to stand out from the world, right? And be marked by love. But then the fifth point that you have on your handout, the pagan revival and the rise of persecution. So their love and compassion did not make them immune to persecution and suffering. As Christians, we don't love others in order to avoid persecution in this world, but to be faithful to God even in suffering. And so Rome and the empire started to decline. And so they tried to, you know, tighten the screws on their, you know, Roman emperor cults to try and help the, uh, to renew the empire, so to speak, to take it, you know, to make Rome great again, um, they literally said. And so they started this imperial cult again, you know, like, let's, let's make everyone participate in this. And what that ended up doing was um, they made it a, a legal requirement for everyone to sacrifice to uh, the, pag- the, the pagan Roman emperor gods and what happened was they said everyone needs to do this and, in, and, and after doing this, they need an official document to, to certify that they've done this, to get a certificate. If they don't do this, if anyone in the empire doesn't do this, they'll die. They'll go to death. Um, and so at this point, it did become nationwide or empire-wide, I should say, that Christians were persecuted if they would not worship these false emperors and so at this point it's you know it imagine if that happened how should christians respond this was a dilemma for the church 
They were caught kind of unawares. They weren't prepared for this. But when this edict went out and said, everyone needs to bow to Caesar and to make, you know, religious uh, worship to him and to the gods of Rome, Christians were stuck. Some Christians immediately rushed to the altars and offered the sacrifices and just did it and got the certificate so that they wouldn't be killed. Some pastors even urged their congregations to do so. Other Christians initially refused, but after prison and torture, they caved in. Still others lived in regions where officials were friendly and they didn't want to kill the Christians because they were favorable towards them because they were good citizens. They said, oh, don't worry about it. I know, you, I know you're a Christian. Just give me money and, and you don't need to make a sacrifice. Just give me money. I'll give you the certificate. It'll be okay. So the question became like, well, can Christians do that? Can they just pay for a certificate that says they did something that was against their religion? Or should they, should they all be killed? Um, and so this was difficult. A number of church members, uh, you can imagine a number of people uh, that, that went against the, the, uh, their consciences or whatever and offered sacrifices to other gods. Some who lied and got a certificate. Others who were martyred for this. It was very difficult. But then it became even more difficult because after the fact, what happened when they said, oh, we want to repent? We don't, you know, we feel bad we did that. How do you measure that repentance? How can they demonstrate repentance? Should they be forgiven? Should they be brought back into membership in the church for those churches that disciplined people that worshipped other gods, you know? These were serious difficulties. This was a great con- uh, controversy um, in the early church. And you guys should wrestle with that and think about it. it you know, it, it's, it's, not an easy, it's not an easy question. Um, if you were a pastor and you encouraged this, could you go back to being a minister? Or if you were a pastor and you just paid and got the certificate, could you... Would you be reinstated as a minister or were you never to do that again? Uh, I'll leave that question hanging until next week and Evan will answer it for you because he's very wise. So in conclusion, just to wrap us up here, thanks for being patient. We've gone a bit late, but despite persecutions from without, outside of the church and divisions from within, Christianity emerged as an unstoppable force in the Roman world. And one of the most striking examples of endurance amidst persecution comes from the life of Polycarp. Polycarp, which means many fruit, must have been an encouraging name for you, right? Many fruit. He's obviously got lots of spiritual fruit in his life. He was a pastor in a church in Smyrna, which is uh, a city that still exists today. In fact, one of our former elders... Uh, one of the guys that helped found the church, John Pentecost, is, is a senior pastor at a church in Smyrna called Smyrna International Protestant Church. Yeah, he's up here on the picture, John. Um, so this city, this, this guy that was born in that city in the year uh, 150 was, uh, was chased by a mob. And they said, get Polycarp. Away with these atheist Christians, which is such a funny thing to think about that they were called that. The soldiers found Polycarp praying in his house. Save yourself, they told him. Consider your old age. They thought he was an old guy. 
they said, what's the harm in saying Caesar is Lord? Just say that once and we won't kill you. But Polycarp refused. He was led to the arena to be thrown to the lions. And the governor gave Polycarp three chances to save his life. First, he told him to say, away with the atheists, meaning Christians. Polycarp pointed to the heathens in the galleries and said, away with the atheists to them. The governor gave him a second chance. He said, curse Christ. Polycarp said, 80 and six years have I served him and he's done me no wrong. I can revi- I, how can I revile my king that saved me? And a third time the governor said, swear by Caesar. Polycarp answered, I'm a Christian. If you want to know what that means, set the day. I'll explain it to you. He wanted to tell these people about Jesus. He said, I'll throw you to the beasts. He said, bring on your beasts. If you scorn the beasts, I'll have you burned. You try to frighten me with the fire that burns for an hour, but you forget the fire of hell never goes out. And so Polycarp was burned at the stake. His final prayer, he said, Lord God Almighty, Father of Jesus Christ, I bless you that you have deemed me worthy. Worthy of this hour that I shall take my place among the martyrs in the cup of Christ to rise again with the Holy Spirit. May I be an acceptable sacrifice. So as we consider the early church, as we consider the sufferings that they endured, the faithfulness that they exhibited, we should praise God for the lives of these brothers and sisters. We should thank God for the great cloud of witnesses that we have that surrounds us. Yet we should ultimately fix our eyes on the same one that they fixed their eyes on. Jesus, who is the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And so, friends, as you face hostility for your faith, whether that's in the workplace or in relationships with family or friends, when you feel the pain of being misunderstood or rejected, when you're accused of harboring hatred in your heart because of the views that you hold, um, remember that there's a great cloud of witnesses that's gone before you. But most of all, remember Jesus and consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. That's, uh, that's all from straight out of Hebrews 12 that we considered right at the beginning of our time together as well. Let me pray.